Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. All right, guys, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And uh, yep, it's afternoon for both of us. This afternoon, we got Seve Fisher from the, the uh, Simon Law Group in uh, Los Angeles. Nice to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so the uh, show is Latte with a Lawyer. So I got to ask you, what's your morning beverage of choice? My morning drink beverage of choice is... Uh... Well, are we talking about after a rough night or just a normal morning? Well, whatever you, you can, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to share. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a coffee guy. Black coffee's good. Um, after a, re- a rough night, I'm I'm a weekend, uh, maybe like a red beer kind of guy. We call it red beer in Idaho, but out here in Southern California, they call it a michelada. So, wait, wait, so I, you got to educate me on that. What the heck is a red beer? And what I don't even know. What does that mean? Uh, a red beer is you, you usually want to go with like a light beer, like your Coors Light, your Bud Light, Corona, Modelo, whatever. And it's just uh, a little splash of uh, tomato juice. You can also use Clamato. Some people use. Um, you can also use just Bloody Mary mix. And you just give it a nice, you know, little mixture. Uh, not too heavy because no one wants to drink thick beer, but it gives it a nice little, a, a little breakfast feel. Oh, I get it. Get it. Okay. Yeah. The, the hair of the dog, the bitch, in other words. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, get it. Yeah. Right. Most, most of the time it's just black coffee. So. All right. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Otherwise we have another conversation we need to have with you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, that's interesting. Cause I was going to ask you questions about, about Idaho. Cause I'm imagining that the culture is not what you're describing, but, uh, Maybe we can talk about that for a minute. So I, I see that's where you're from. I mean, in Idaho, I, I don't think it, I mean, that's not a heavy drinking, you know, uh, party culture, right? No, not really. I was actually, uh, I was actually born and, and raised and baptized in the, in the LDS church. Um, so how I figured my, that. that's what I was gonna, yeah. I didn't want to say that, but I kind of, yeah, no, guessed. totally cool. I'm an open book, man. Uh, half my extended family is still like practicing Mormons. And then, uh, I quickly just realized it wasn't for me, my, not my cup of tea. Um, but still have a lot of good friends that are, and you know, love them. Just well, the how same. do you make that decision? It's interesting. And again, I, yeah, again, just based on my being on the planet for a while, I kind of figured that was the case. And you went to university of Utah. But how do you make the decision to leave the church? Because that's a big decision, right? You know, it, it is and it isn't. My So my parents weren't as strict LDS as maybe like my mom's sisters. Okay. Um, and it's not like a decision you just wake up this morning and go, you know what? I'm leaving the church. Um, it was kind of just something gradually. You just stop going. You know, yeah. nobody really gets on you. Or I didn't have parents that were really, you know, uh, strict or gave me a lot of rules i kind of did what i wanted growing up um for better or for worse and you know i just it just i i was i felt too bound i felt too handcuffed by a lot of rules i and you know everyone says you know you only live once enjoy it yet here's someone else trying to handcuff my life and that's why i you know i just felt like i didn't have the freedom um to make to make the choices i wanted to make got it yeah but it's conditioning, you know, I mean, I mean, 
for you to think outside of the box when there's so much conditioning to keep you in the box, you know, whether it's Orthodox Judaism or, you know, uh, you know, uh, Sharia law, whatever it is, you know what I mean? It's hard to think outside of that. That's what, what, what I find interesting. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, just like any religion, I'm sure there's a lot of judgmental people that, you know, you get those, those eyebrow raises when you're yeah. not doing what, what, you know, conforms to what they want you to do. Um, but you know, my, I always say my religion is just being a good person, you know, like I just, I think there's nothing better, uh, in life than just be a good person, you know, don't be an asshole. Yeah. That's <laughs> that, that, a long ways. That's universal, right? I mean, that is, that is the core of any religion, right? How you get there. It was a philosopher, Joseph Campbell, that said a hero with a thousand faces. Mm-hmm. But he was saying is that, you know, there's lots of paths to get there. And, but at the, at the core, right, just be a good person. So that's a good segue into what you do, because your job is to help people, right? Right. So tell us about that, your practice, what you do. Yeah, I do all uh, catastrophic injury work. So I represent the injured or the uh, a family member of somebody who died. Yeah. Um, against the insurance company, the defense industry. And, you know, we, I would say 85% of our practice is primarily major spine injuries, whether okay. it be, you know, fusion surgeries from an automobile crash or a workplace injury that has some third party, you know, negligence involved. Um, also, you know, the rest of that 15% is kind of a combination. It could be wrongful death, traumatic brain injury, serious orthopedic injuries, other, you know, other extremities, things like that. And obviously there's some overlap yeah. between, between multiple too. So yeah, that's okay. what I do. Okay, cool. But all catastrophic injuries. Yep. yep. And I'm one of the, one of the main trial lawyers at the firm. Um, there's five of us who are sort of, we call us the trial team. Yeah. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have a caseload or anything. I just basically take depositions and try cases. Oh, I see. So in other words, people sort of do the intake and the pre-litigation when it goes to trial, they hand it off to a team. Right. Cause, and, and even once a complaint's filed, once a lawsuit's filed, there's a whole two years of discovery that you need to do. And we have managers and we work in teams at our firm. Okay. Two, two lawyers try every case. And then before it even gets to trial, we have teams. Uh, each team has a manager. I think we have like four or five teams. The manager also has a couple associates under them and paralegals and legal, other legal staff that help them. So they get it in a, in a nice place and work it up nicely to where we can come in and hopefully close the deal. That's interesting. I mean, most law firms don't operate like that. No, I would say, yeah, it, it's very rare. But, um, you know, we have a, a culture at our firm that we try to identify people's strengths. And we try to really just let them, you know, thrive on those. Some people don't want to try cases, and we're not going to make you. Uh, you know, not everybody can be a trial lawyer. Not everybody wants to be a trial lawyer. And not everybody has the really the personality to be one, you know? Yeah. So. That's, I, I got to tell you what, that's really interesting. And I'm going to give you an analogy. So, you know, in, in, in a sales organization, which is really kind of the role I played my whole life, it's the same thing. You break it down to roles, right? You have the marketing team, you have the, what they call the sales development rep that just engages and gets people interested. Then you have somebody that might, you know, start the process and then close it. And then you hand it off to the account management team. In the old days, the way they used to do it, I get lots of gray here. You did everything, right? You prospected, you got the client, you brought them through a sales process, you closed them. And to your point exactly, now in, in a modern sales organization, you break it down to these discrete functions that people are good at. 
So it's interesting to hear that you do that as a law firm. That's real interesting. We do. It's, it's actually interesting little piece about me though, is, is I actually grew up in the car business and I was a car dealer. My whole family just was in the car business from sales to finance department to general manager, things like that. And he actually let me sell cars when I was 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in, in the summer times, I would sell used cars and it's, you know, I found that it's not that, you know, dissimilar from what I do now, right? Like sure. you, you're going into an atmosphere in front of a jury or a customer yeah, and they already have a stereotype about you that you're a sleazeball, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. to a certain extent that they do. And, you know, my job is to just be myself and, you know, be honest and try to, you know, part of it is just showing them that I'm not that stereotype. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I think, you know, to be a good trial lawyer, you got to be yourself and you got to be genuine because the the minute, the moment you aren't, it you're going to get spotted, right? And and people are going to know. Yeah, absolutely. So what is it about you that, th- that sort of makes you a good trial lawyer and you're on that team, the special team, the SWAT team? You know, I got the opportunity to try cases early. Um, my... Uh, bosses Bob and Brad Simon, who are now my partners. Um, I was a lawyer for 30 days when I tried my first case. And you just don't get that in our industry. And, uh, you know, we're big believers in taking chances in people, uh, you know, regardless of their experience level, and really letting them flourish. And he gave me that opportunity. And so I would say that gave me the groundwork to really, you know, you got to be comfortable in there and you know, you got to learn all the stuff that is trial and the things that come up and the rules and the procedure and all that. So you need that foundation. But I think to really succeed in being a trial lawyer, you just got to be, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about, you got to be a good person, and you got to be good with people and people have to like you, right. And I say a lot of the trial lawyers that I know, have sort of that outgoing personality, that, you know, the, the people that you would love to just go like have a beer with and sit down and talk to. Right. Um, right. It, it's not it's definitely not for the people that just like to sit in an office all day and, and sit behind a computer and maybe get a little anxious when they're, you know, public speaking or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoy I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy meeting new friends and creating a network. And I enjoy, you know, I, I'm just a social guy. Like I just love to take it, you know, every event that comes up that allows me to go meet people and mingle with, you know, my colleagues is, is I'm taking advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I can see it. I mean, you got a big personality. I can, I can sense that immediately when I first start talking to you. Yeah. Which is great. Um, But I'm not sure, but again, I go, let's go back to sales for a minute because, you know, again, my experience is that it's all personalities can be good because really what it comes down to, and it's probably the same thing with being, being a good lawyer you got, you got to know how you got to have to listen. You got to ask good questions. You got to draw out the other side. Right. Right. And so you can be introverted and be really good at that actually. Right. Um, so, but, um, but he, you know, obviously I, I guess I was reading your background. I mean, the Simon saw something in you. They liked right immediately. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> so, you know, good for you. Well, and, and, you know, the, the thing about it is, too, that I think is really important is your confidence, uh, you know, confidence is a huge factor in what we do, in, yeah. in what in just being a person in life and being successful in whatever industry, right? Yes. And I feel like in order to get that first bit of confidence, 
that kind of comes from outside of you, right? That comes from other people and the way they treat you, maybe a decision they make, like you're talking about the Simons having their faith in me that provided the confidence. Right. And then, then I needed to go get a good result, right? That provided more confidence. And then from there, you're like, okay, anybody can get lucky. Can I go do it again? Right. Right. So you're just continuing to build that confidence. And with that, I mean, that just helps you even more just continuing to, but Ultimately, someone's got to take a chance on you and say, you know what, I got faith in this guy, uh, you know, because that's what instills confidence in ourselves is other people, you know, sort of affirming that for you. Yeah. So so um, where, do, where do you think the confidence comes from? I mean, you're always confident as a kid growing up? You know, uh, I would say, yeah, I just uh, there wasn't something that I felt I couldn't do. Um, you know, I grew up playing competitive junior golf. And I was going to ask you if you were an athlete. I yeah, I, grew, yeah. I grew up playing competitive junior golf and I feel like golf's the only sport where it all rests on your shoulders. You're responsible for your ups and downs. There's no team member to blame. Um, so, you know, I, I think that helps provide that level of, you know, taking accountability and responsibility that it's, it's me. It's all me. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I had another uh, podcast with another guy from, but he's, he was with, uh, what's the big law firm? Of course, I'm going to forget the name, but the biggest law firm in the world, I think. He, he was also uh, raised in the LDS church and he was a golfer. Yeah. Competitive golfer. So what is it about that? I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, it's golf. Do you play any golf? I do. I mean, I stay, I, I'm not very good at it, but I, I play and I get a little bit better each time. Well, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people see it as just this sport where you got to go hit a ball, but there's a lot to it, right? Like, oh, you yeah. Gotta, you know the hole you you you're constantly setting yourself up for the next shot there's strategy there's things you have to take into account the type of grass the type of you know trees the wind you know the type of club you know your lie everything you have to take angles you know so it's it's a lot going on up here and you really have to over you know just try to simplify it and and it's a it's a lot of strategy so yeah you know but i was wondering like maybe there's some correlation between the lds church and golf or something i don't know I, I don't know about that. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, listen, I always said that, you know, uh, they're the best salespeople in the world. I mean, you guys have to, you, you went out on the mission, maybe? I did or not. You, or you missed that part. Okay. Missed but like the part. fact that, happens, that that happens when you're 19. Okay. But I mean, like, I mean, what, what better training really, right, right? For the world and like, than that. I mean, I, th- I think that's actually pretty cool. Totally. That whole process. Um. How many lawyers now are at the Simon Group? I think we have about 20. Oh, that's it? Oh, I thought it was a lot bigger. Okay, there's yeah, 20 we, lawyers. Okay. We have about 20, and then we have about a staff of 60 or so. And then we have our Justice HQ, um, you know, which is a, a, a lot of solos that that we all, you know, it's a collaboration. And, I see. Yeah. You know, so that in, within that, there's probably, you know, 200 plus. Oh, I see. So di- from different law firms become part of this consortium. Yep, they do. And we have like, you know, certain chats and we all, you know, we have a lot of cool events like mentor power hours, things like that. We we roundtable cases. If you need anything and you're just starting out as a solo, like somebody on here in the membership has got it. You need yeah. a motion. We got you. You know what I mean? It's it's a lot of that stuff. It really helps young lawyers and solo practitioners and even big lawyers you know, uh, move forward in their practice and succeed. Got it. Who's your mentor? Do you have a mentor? You know, I have a a lot of people in our sort of industry that have helped me out, you know, along the way, but 
you know, I got a lot of my training from, from Bob Simon. Um, I would say he's, you know, my, my mentor within the, within the firm and within our practice of what we do. Um, my, my mentor just in life in general was my grandfather, uh, who passed away in 2013, I think. Okay. So he, he was my mentor growing up and everything like that. Always, you know, wanted to be like him and, um, but yeah, so. Oh, what was it about him? Why was, what was it about him? Yeah. You know, he was just a, uh, he was a, a, a poor guy at a young age in his low twenties and, and literally had nothing but five kids and, and you know, strapped his boots on and went and started working at a car dealer and eventually owned, you know, three or four of them. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So he, and he just, you know, he always just helped me out. He was kind of a father figure to me and, you know, just helped, always helped me moving forward with advice, life advice, school advice, anything you could ask for. He was just, you know, I talked to him probably at least every other day from the time I was you know, 15 to when he died. That's great. Yeah. So it's, yeah, now listen, I think it's important to always have a mentor, you know, someone you can look up to and, and learn from. Yeah. It's super helpful. Yeah. It, it, now that I get a lot of gray here, I try to play that role with, uh, yeah. with the, well, younger. People, you know, people need it, especially, you know, young people in, in any industry, especially yeah. in the, in the lawyer field, you know, you just need it. You, you, you know, it's so important and it means so much to young people when somebody who you see as this sort of like superhuman individual crushing it at their trade, you know, takes time out of their day to give you advice or talk to you or, or anything, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really meaningful. And I don't think, I think as the mentor, I don't think you fully understand it, uh, what it means to these people. So I try to remember that. I try to remember people that did that for me. And hopefully I can, you know, pro provide that same value to others, you know, when they need it. Absolutely. I mean, listen, just doing this is going to be helpful to somebody listening. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure it will be. Um, what was I going to say? So the whole firm just does catastrophic injuries. That That is the practice of the whole firm. Yeah. Yeah. We're solely personal injury. We've thought about, you know, diversifying into other types of law and stuff, but we just have so much traffic that we, we just can't, I mean, we have so many of those types of cases and keeping, you know, 20 lawyers and 60 staff members busy, you know, that we've just, we've kind of got our, our practice and, and what we, we specialize in. So, yeah. So you might, you must use, uh, you use expert witnesses, uh, medical illustrations, all the devices Yep. in the work. Yeah. Oh yeah. Animations. I just got off a, I did a deposition for trial this morning that will be played of, of our orthopedic doctor. And we had an animation of the surgery he did and I had him walk us through it. And so it'll play while the, while the jury's watching it. Okay. Oh, you got, wait, I think you use Maltus. You use Maltus? I do. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. No, those guys. Okay. okay. Yeah. They're great. Good. Thomas Neal. Yep. Yep. I know Thomas. There you go. All right. A little smile. So you guys must. Yeah. He played my, I, I just started a, I just started a charity. He plays golf, right? He's yeah, a golfer. I, he played in my first charity golf tournament. So yeah, he's, he's a big supporter. Oh, good. Excellent. Good stuff. Um, So what other, what other technology do you guys use in your practice? Oh man, we use, we're all paperless. So, you know, we're doing all of our depositions via zoom, which is awesome. 
because you know we get we don't get paid per hour we get paid perhaps you know yeah so, yeah. so we're uh it's nice to cut out that travel time and you know i can go grab my kids from school i can you know give my family more attention things like that um we also use we have a trial technician that we use for every trial um we cut up video clips we try to show the jury as many pictures as possible demonstrations things like that um just because people we live in a, a time right now where people need information immediately yeah the best way to, the best way to get it to them is is to show them graphics and cool demonstratives and you know not read them text <laughs> exactly so you're only in you're only in the courtroom courtroom and depositions yeah and depositions so how many how many jury trials a year do you do i would say on average six okay yeah yeah probably about six and how long does it take to prepare for a trial i mean it depends on the case i would say truly prepare you're thinking about it you're dreaming about it probably four weeks in advance yeah you know when i come in i'll come in about four to six weeks in advance to get my eyes on it know that i'm you know i'm seeing this one through you spend a lot of time with the client in their homes because that's where you know you find a lot of the magical story and you can tell their story effectively um so yeah i'd say about that time frame sometimes you're limited though because you may go from one trial into you know one that you have two weeks later yeah yeah so, but you only do it one at a time. You only right. one at a time. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. So if you do six, four weeks, six, that makes sense. And that gets you through the year. Okay. Yeah. And it comes, it's ebbs and flows, you know, like during COVID, obviously we tried none. Right. So, um, but coming out, it seems like we, we're back to back. We, we're in three trials right now, currently. Really? Okay. Yeah. In different uh, jurisdictions. So. Okay. Yeah. What's your... I mean, so you've been, I mean, you're a young guy. You haven't been doing it that long. What's your most memorable case you worked on? I would say it was the case. Um, I represented a 26 year old guy who was on his bicycle and he got hit. And it was mm. a, it was a small policy um, that the insurance company kind of messed up in, in tendering. So we believed it to be open. Um, they also disputed liability. Our guy didn't have, he was in violation of the vehicle code. He didn't have lights on his bike, any reflectors or no helmet as well. Suffered a spinal injury that 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 basically took away a lot of, not a lot of, but partial function in all four limbs. He could still mm. walk and still use his limbs, but like certain ones, like he couldn't like open his hand like this, for example. Like he'd okay. have to shove a bottle in there and like hold on to it. That was the one hand. The other hand worked pretty good. Yeah. Um. So that case, we ended up going to trial and getting uh, a $15 million verdict. Wow. And then came the next lawsuit because then we had to take the insurance company to a whole new separate litigation to see if they messed up and breached their uh, duty to the insured in not paying within the policy limits. And therefore, it was open and they're on the hook for that entire verdict. And we just won that last week. So... They're now on the hook for about $17 million. Wow. And what and what was it? So you went be, beyond the policy limit. Right. And how do you get, how do you do that? How do you make the breach well, of the contract or something? When you, yes, it's it's based in the, the, the duty of good faith and fair dealing, which is implied in all contracts, and they owe their insured that duty. And what that entails is if we make a reasonable demand 
for the policy or something within the policy, and they make an unreasonable rejection or don't pay it, or they don't meet certain material conditions of our demand, that is in effect a counter offer or a rejection. Okay. And the court has to determine, the court and or jury determines whether or not they acted in bad faith and their decision to whatever they did was unreasonable, right? So that's what happened. And here we are. I mean, this verdict was four years ago. The incident was four years before that. We're eight years post-incident, and we're finally going to go get to deliver this young guy, uh, the best client ever, you know, a, a fat check that he that he deserves. Wow. More than anything. So. so so that's interesting. How do you substantiate that they're dealing in bad faith? Because you could say that about most insurance companies, right? They, they always lowball the other it, side. Yeah, but if you have the facts and you give them the information that shows that they it's worth the policy and they f- mess it up, right? Then that's, you know, it's a case by case basis, but sure. one of one of the ways you prove that your demand was reasonable for the policy is showing, you know, the likelihood that it would hit if it was a verdict would be worth in excess of that policy. Um. Well, it's it's presumed that element is presumed that it was in excess of the policy and the value of the case was more than the policy once you hit that first verdict. So that $15 million we hit, we blew the policy by, you know, 14 some million. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that most plaintiff attorneys don't get there where you do and substantiate it's a risky you know it's a risky play you know sometimes you know you're not just dealing with one you're dealing with two you know sort of litigation uh phases yeah they could still appeal and things like that so a lot of attorneys won't take cases like that um but you know you just gotta you gotta vet it you gotta read the facts you gotta really review the demands the rejections the responses from the insurance companies and decide whether it's worth taking a gamble on um it was a big gamble yeah yeah but you know, um, it was. Well, what's the downside if if you don't if you can't do that if you can't prove that? What happens? We lose all of our costs that we put into the case, which was to the tune of about a half a million dollars. Got it. Do you use uh, litigation financing, or you fund it yourself? We fund it ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Do you use focus groups, mock trials? We do. Um, we do some focus group stuff. Uh, I would say the person we use the most um, is. Harry Plotkin. Do you know the Plotkins? Harry and Claire Plotkin? Uh, I've heard of them. I don't know them. Yeah. Harry comes in and uh, he's a jury consultant and he also does like a very fast online like focus group and and I think he calls it a pinpoint analysis. So we do that. Um, he always comes and picks a jury with me as a, as a consultant, him or his yeah. wife. And really smart guy. I, you know, talk about being a, a special a specialist at your trade. You know, yeah. I may be picked you know, 25 juries, he's picked thousands because all he does is go from trial to trial and pick juries with people. Sure. So it's nice to, it's nice to have him there and and his expertise and his knowledge and just reading people and and what types of people, you know, based on their responses, like how he predicts they may rule on certain issues. Right. I mean, you, you win or die by the jury, right? Absolutely. So I I would think that's the most critical part. Yeah. So, but you, you, but you, you also got to figure out like what's going to resonate with them, right? But you want it too, right? Absolutely. I mean, how, 
how do you, does he also help you with that? You know, a lot of that is just more so, you know, your time with the client, right? Um, and finding out that story, you know, finding out why I want to fight for them and why I would, you know, what what hits my heartstring. Yeah. Right? Because if it does me, it's going to the jury, no, no doubt about it, unless they're just not human. Yeah. Right? So it's about finding that that sort of human element along the way and really you know pushing that as as your theme and and letting the jury see how how great it is got it so i didn't ask this but let me as we sort of wind this down i mean how did you even make the decision to become a lawyer again you grew up in you you were selling cars and doing different stuff i mean how'd you make that decision you know just sort of circling back to my mentor discussion with my grandfather um you know we, we we were just sitting down one day and he just said, you know what? I think you'd be a good lawyer. Why don't you pursue that? And the rest is kind of history. <laughs> you know, he, he just used to, he used to think that I, you know, in, in being so close with somebody and having somebody like that, who is essentially a father figure, you know, you can imagine we got in a, in a few arguments and things like that. <laughs> and I think just the way, you know, it, it wasn't even necessarily that I was a good arguer. I just think, he liked the way that my thought process worked and he saw something there that told him like, man, like, you know, you should, you should go do some litigation. And that's, I would, uh, I got on the track from then forward and here we are. Got it. You probably closed a lot of car sales too. Yeah. I like to think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I liked it, but it just wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a tough way to make a living. It really is. Although I, I've heard uh, someone said to me, oh, you should be a Mercedes-Benz salesman. I'm thinking, do they actually make a pretty good living? I don't know. Uh, well, back in the 80s and 90s, it was a, a great business to be yeah. in. But, you know, the, I think the profit margins were just a lot higher back then. But, yeah, I think it sort of fizzled as time went by. Yeah, exactly. You can buy it. You can just go to uh, online and get a car delivered to you now. So. Right. Technology has eliminated a lot of the sort of the uh, the old jobs that used to exist. Yep. They're gone. They're not going to get rid of lawyers, though, I don't think anytime soon. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> At least until you make some real money, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, this has been uh, really fun. It's good to good to spend time with you. What uh, just fi final words? What do you want to leave with the uh, audience? What do you want them to know about you and your practice and best way to connect, connect with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would just say that we are uh, a law firm that's that's built on sharing. Um, we don't hide our work product. We're more than happy to, to share anything. Any, I'll always take a phone call, an email. My email is sevy, S-E-V-Y, at justiceteam.com. Um, you know, always, always had people that, you know, would respond and give me the time of day. So always happy to do the same and, and, you know, like I said, we're, we're an open door. We'll, we'll give you whatever you want, any motion. We don't protect any of our stuff, you know? Um, so yeah. Good stuff. All right. Um, thank you. I really appreciate the time. Sebi Fisher from the Simon Law Group in beautiful Los Angeles. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And this is sponsored by uh, um, Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform that helps guys like you prepare for trial with our platform. So again, thanks. Thanks a ton, Savvy. It's really fun. Yep. Thanks for having me.